Malachi 2, verse 17 to 3, verse 4. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by as in former years. This is the word of the Lord. In our Advent series, Who Are You Waiting For?, we are looking at how some of the prophets talked about the Messiah, the one that was to come. So we are looking at a different prophet each week. Last week was Jeremiah. We'll get to Zephaniah and Micah before the season is out. And this week we are looking at Malachi. So to get us started, because we don't often read from Malachi, we need to look at what exactly is going on at the time that Malachi is writing to God's people. Malachi is situated at the end of the Old Testament, but that doesn't really tell us much about where it falls chronologically in the life of Israel. But what we do know is that when Malachi is writing, there is a functioning temple in Jerusalem, which means that this prophecy is written after Israel has returned from exile and built the second temple under the leadership of Ezra. So Jeremiah last week was talking to the people while they were in exile, and Malachi is talking to the people now after they have returned home. And when the people returned home from exile, things went pretty well for a while. The people were committed. They rebuilt the temple. They dedicated their lives to God. They lived in grateful obedience to him. But old habits die hard. And by the time Malachi appears on the scene, the people have lost some of that initial vigor and have slid into their pre-exile ways. They have become apathetic in their faith and lazy in their worship. Even the priests aren't practicing what they preach. And so God, through Malachi, enters into debate with the people, calling them back again to covenant faithfulness. It is a pretty direct conversation that's recorded here. The first person singular for God, so God I, is used in 47 of the 55 verses of this book. God has a lot to say to the people. And in our passage today, God gets right to it. You have wearied the Lord with your words. That's such a good line, isn't it? You can just hear the fatigue in it. You have wearied the Lord with your words. 
just stop already. And the people, clueless to their beleaguering ways, pop back up and they say, well, how? How have we wearied the Lord? And God responds by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. And by asking, where is the God of justice? So we are not just talking about the weariness of your three-year-old plying you with questions as you try to put them to bed. This is a people who have fundamentally missed the point of who God is, and God is tired of it. And they have missed this point because things haven't exactly turned out for Israel the way they thought they would. Yes, they are home from exile. Yes, they have a new temple. Yes, they have rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. But they are still a tiny little backwoods province in the massive kingdom of Persia. It's nothing like their former days of glory. The bad guys, at the end of the day, seem to have won. And if that's the case, then what's the point in still being a good guy? So the people whine. Where is the God of justice? Does he in fact favor the wicked? If God doesn't care, then why should we? The people have fallen into a bit of a religious malaise, but also a bit of a religious predicament. Because on the one hand, they have stopped caring. But on the other hand, they complain that God doesn't care enough. So God shows them just how invested he is. Unfortunately, the NIV doesn't demonstrate quite how feisty God is feeling in this text. The Hebrew of chapter 3 begins with hine, or see here. Listen up. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. Well, that verse begs an important question. Who is this messenger? The Hebrew for messenger is malach. And since I, or E, signifies the first person possessive, Malik he becomes my messenger. So maybe the messenger we're talking about is the prophet. The lectionary places this prophecy along with the gospel reading of John the Baptist, who echoes the call, prepare ye the way of the Lord. So maybe John is the messenger we're talking about. But this verse also describes this messenger as the Lord you are seeking, using a term which often refers to Yahweh. So maybe the answer is simply yes. God's messenger is Malachi. God's messengers are the prophets. God's messenger is the son of Zechariah. God's messenger is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ in his coming both as a babe and when he comes upon the clouds in judgment. Because judgment is what this messenger brings with him. 
and not just judgment on Israel's enemies, not just judgment on Persia, judgment on Israel herself. You want justice, says God? I'll give you justice, a justice that no one can escape. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? No one. Judgment comes for all. This is obviously one of the less cheerful themes of Advent. But it's a pretty important one. Fleming Rutledge is a preacher and a theologian who published a marvelous book on Advent a few years ago. And she says that Advent most closely mirrors the daily lives of Christians and of the church and presents the most accurate picture of the human condition. And if that's true, then in Advent, we have to reckon with the fact that the human condition is more than a little beat up. Advent is a season for praying for light in the midst of darkness. And when we talk about the darkness, we we do so as something that is out there, something outside of us. When we come with our laments and our sorrows, we bring before God those things in the world that we cannot change but long to. We pray against war, against leaders who seem to only seek their own gain. We pray against the the darkness of illness and the, the vitriol of online discussions and the despair of natural disasters. We are pretty good at praying that God might correct, might might break through the heavens and fix the systemic symptoms of sin in the world. Those things that seem to be built into the fabric of the cosmos as a result of communal pride and greed and animosity. We are less good, less comfortable, at asking that God might break through the heavens and fix us. Some friends asked me earlier this week what I was preaching on, and I jokingly said, well, the text is Malachi 3, so it's basically a hellfire and brimstone kind of sermon. And we laughed because we know that we don't really preach such sermons anymore, that we are enlightened now and far superior to those preachers of yore who preached with such declarative judgment that you were certain lightning would strike as soon as he uttered an amen. But it is possible that the pendulum has swung a little too far in the other direction. John Calvin once said that the human mind was a perpetual factory of idols. We are constantly making God in our own image. And one of the prevailing mantras of today is that perhaps the worst sin of all is judgment. Judge not, lest ye be judged. We are called to be tolerant, to love with no strings attached, to ask nothing of people other than that they be allowed to be exactly who they are, however they define that. And so, says Fleming Rutledge, one of the idols of our own time is the idol we have made of a God who never judges anyone or anything. 
We have created a God who accepts everyone just as they are and never says anything against us because that would be judgment. And yes, it is true that God loves us unconditionally. That God does beckon us to come to him just as we are. There is a wideness in God's mercy, an unfathomable depth to his patience and forbearance and love for us, warts and all. But when Jesus ate with sinners, when he saved a woman from stoning, when he healed people on the road, he didn't just say to them, well, this was great, carry on. He said to them, go and sin no more. We miss one of the key components of the character of God if we think of him as only a benevolent, loving, kindly grandfather in whose eyes his grandchildren can do no wrong. Rather, says Rutledge, The overall testimony of the Old and New Testament is that God will save us from the judgment, but he won't save us without judgment. Because to say that God is love, and God is righteous, and God is just, is to say that God is therefore against anything that is not love, or righteous, or just. That he must stand against these things. That he must condemn these things. And that he must condemn these things, not in some sweeping proclamation that gets tacked up on a billboard or shared on a Facebook page. No, to pray for God's justice to be done. To pray that God would root out the evil of this world. This is to pray that God would root out the evil in us. Not in the person over there, not in the people on Parliament Hill, not in the leaders of foreign countries, in us. The people of Israel hadn't bargained on that, which is perhaps surprising given their fairly recent history of exile. They wanted the God of total acceptance the God who would back them up when they came face to face with their enemy, the God who would fight for them without expecting anything of them in return, not the God of judgment. But here's the thing about judgment. Rutledge writes in one of her sermons that judgment, with today's negative connotation, only entered the Oxford English Dictionary in the 20th century. That's pretty recent as far as language goes. Prior to this, to judge something meant to discern its worth or value. To judge a thing is to look at a piece of rock picked up out of a stream and to discern the gold hidden within. And if you found such a rock, would you not do everything you could to free the gold from the sediment around it? I was watching a show once about colonial Virginia and the quest for gold and silver in its mountains. 
And a character believed that he had found silver. And so he raced back to the settlement, and immediately they set up a process to determine its worth. The metal was melted in a fiery heat, and then molten lead was added to which would cling all of the impurities until what was left was the pure silver. And so God's judgment comes as a refining fire, as a molten lead that is poured on us. And of course, we do not like this, this, the heaviness, this, this weight. But implicit in this idea of judgment, implicit in God's disapproval and his hatred of all things evil and sinful, is the idea of liberation. There is this beautiful truth in this passage that God does not leave us to our own devices. God does not give up on us. God knows what lies within our dusty, dirty, sediment-filled selves. He knows because he put it there. His image, with its capacity for love, for creativity, for acts of kindness and justice and mercy. God does not give up on us. In his love, in his mercy, in his judgment, he is choosing us and calling out of us that which is good, that which is holy, that which is just, that which is righteous. And so in his grace, God shows us what it is in our lives that needs to be rooted out, that needs to be melted away. And that judgment doesn't come through a lightning bolt or the actual face of God breaking through the heavens to shout at us. Thankfully, we experience judgment in slightly less awful but no less convicting ways in many moments of apocalypse. Steve Mathenet Vanderwell is a retired RCA pastor from Iowa, and a few years ago he wrote an essay on apocalypse for the Reformed Journal blog. And he wrote that the word apocalyptic means revealing, disclosure, an unveiling, that what has been hidden has now been brought to light. We hear apocalypse and we think of the end times. That's not entirely wrong. We are waiting for God to break through the heavens and do something grand to fix all of the wrongs, to bring down the mighty and raise up the poor. But, says Mathen at Vanderwell, it is hard to stand on tiptoe for 2,000 years. So he refers to the Lutheran pastor Nadia Boltzweber, who has tried to normalize the word apocalypse as simply meaning disclosure. Not just for the end time, but any time that something is brought to light in society or within us. So the, the Me Too movement is an apocalypse. The surprise outcome of a vote is an apocalypse. A kid running away from home is an apocalypse. 
And any time we do something or say something and we feel that twinge of our conscience, that immediate stab of regret or discomfort, that is an apocalypse. A moment that reveals to us the nastiness we are capable of. An experience of immediate judgment that says, this is not who you were meant to be. I titled this sermon, Be Careful What You Wish For. Israel wished for justice, and they got a heaping dose of it. But that exactly is what we should wish for. We should stand on tiptoe. We should expect, we should long for God to break through the heavens and unveil in us that which is not good and pleasing and holy and true, that he might, as the great hymn says, take away the love of sinning. We should hope that in his judgment, through the work of the Spirit, God would summon forth in us lives of holiness and gratitude Lives that delight in following Christ, in his goodness, and in his truth. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord God, reveal to us those things that are displeasing to you. Help us to repent of those things to turn away from our sin, to surrender our lives to your refining fire. And as you strip away our impurities, reveal more and more who you created us to be, children of God, image bearers of the Holy One. Thank you, God, that you love us enough to stick with us, that you do not give up on us, but you call us back again and again and again. May we receive your love with gladness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.